Deuteronomy 6, and we're going to read the first nine verses. You will see if you just briefly look at chapter 5, the, the commandments, or the ten commandments have been issued, and now this is the outworking, the implications and their applications in the lives of a believing people. Deuteronomy 6 verse 1, These are the commands, decrees and laws that the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you. And so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and write them on your foreheads. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And then the last section, verse 20. In the course of time, as prosperity and blessing may come our way, and the generations begin to emerge, here are some issues for us to note. In the future, as time unfolds, when your son or your offspring, son or daughter, asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees and laws the Lord your God has commanded you? Tell him, tell them, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes the Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land that he promised on oath to our forefathers. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all his law before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. Last Sunday we considered knowing God under the subheading Life's Major Pursuit, Knowing God. This morning we're looking at loving God, our ultimate response. Knowing Him and loving Him. And in a way these two uh, sermons are integral and complementary. 
Let me begin by uh, a quote that I hope that you will see uh, makes a connection. It's an account that I read this week. Not so long ago, in a company not very far from here, a young scientist called Anita pondered the utter absence and impoverishment of relationships with her working colleagues. Every day, the quote-unquote team would come in, suit up in white, and scurry like moles into their single-person labs that the purity of this research required. Occasionally, one of them would scuttle out, take a domestic beaker and mix boiling H2O with a naturally occurring brown organic compound rich in caffeine. Then, they would scamper silently back to their lab to imbibe the solution alone. No one talked to each other. No one shared ideas about their research. No one really had much fun. So the young scientist, Anita, decided to do something, to have an experiment. The experiment was that she would announce that next Friday at 10.30 she would make the coffee and produce chocolate biscuits. And so it was that on Friday 10.30 all the scientists scampered out of their single unit labs lured by chocolate like mice to cheese into Anita's benevolent conversational trap. Talk, God forbid, talk. And over coffee and biscuits, they talked about life, about their news, about their problems, their research, the coming weekend. And calorie by calorie, the team became a real team. When Anita left the company, no one made coffee on Friday morning. No one brought in chocolate biscuits. Six months later, the situation was so dire that the company hired a management consultancy to do a team-building exercise at enormous financial cost. And yet all they needed was a packet of chocolate biscuits and somebody to make the coffee. What does it mean to actually love? Because you cannot love unless you relate. And if we want to live in some sort of blissful isolation, what impoverished souls we have become. So the theme about loving God is a very powerful one. Not only so much as what it says, but for its implications. And I hope that some of these things will register with us. In other words, simply, I don't mean that in the, in the dismissive sense, and nevertheless, simply having an intellectual knowledge about God as it's found in the Bible is manifestly insufficient. And there are many good churches and well-meaning people who genuinely believe that that's what you have to do and everything will be all right. It won't be all right because we're not wired up like that. 
it is insufficient to sustain and nourish the fullness of life, not merely existing or ricocheting off people, and to sustain our faith, hope and love. Think for a moment with me then, and as a church we would value what we are doing here, speaking about God's word, understanding it, and appreciating its benefits. The benefits are, for example, it gives substance to our faith. It helps us in times of testing. It enables us to explain to others the reason for the hope that we have within us. However, knowledge simply in and of itself can also be a dangerous thing. Think, for example, for a moment. Knowledge, when it, Bible knowledge, when it remains theoretical, can breed indifference. After this sermon, you can go home and say, well, so what? I haven't heard anything I haven't heard before. That may well be true. And knowledge, when it isn't balanced by love and grace, can breed intolerance. So easy to look down on other people and be dismissive of people's failures, spiritual and moral. And knowledge, when it is an end in itself, can breed a form of idolatry, evangelical idolatry, grant you, but that's what it is. You see the point. Yes, knowing God is vital, and all that we try to do, but loving God is such an integral part of that. And without that, we would miss the point. The South Staffordshire NHS inquiry about a large number of fatalities among patients, the inquiry has come up with this terrible observation. The, the trust hit the targets, but neglected the patients. They missed the point. And we can be like this in church. Yes, we've, th there it is, and uh, we dot the I and cross the T, and we miss the point. We miss the point. So here we are this morning thinking about this massive theme of the love of God. So let's try to come back to our reading for a moment and try to see how this uh, applies to us here uh, th this morning. It opens up, Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9, uh, with what uh, is called the Shema. And uh, what we, just think for a moment, let's try to stand back from what we're doing here this morning. You might think, well, what is church? How do you do church? Some people like to use that word. Our roots are found not simply in tradition. Some traditions are good, some are not so good. But are found in God's word itself. And this is the covenant that God is making with his people that is relevant today, as we read in Deuteronomy 6. So, what's the essence of church? Just think about this for a moment. It's interesting, there's not a great deal 
of specific information in the Bible regarding the form of how we adopt and adjust to uh, worship. The synagogue service was created out of the fact that the temple was destroyed. So the formal moved on to the informal. Interestingly, Jesus would have been familiar with both the temple and the synagogue. And most people would believe, and it's almost beyond argument, that the way that we do church today finds its roots in these four things. The Shema. The Shema, first of all, is the Jewish creed. And the Jewish creed, and on Monday will be the beginning of the Jewish Passover. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God. He is one. And they eat the bread of suffering. Reflecting on their bondage in, under Pharaoh and their great exodus to the promised land. The Shema, the Jewish creed. And then the prayers. Set prayers and collective prayers with the responsive amens. And then thirdly, the reading from the law and the prophets and the Psalms. Which would some of them would have been sung the way we do. And then finally, the exposition. That uh, the rabbi, uh, and all that they needed was ten uh, working people, one rabbi, share 10% of their salary, you have a synagogue. Terribly uncomplicated. And there they would meet. And in a way, that's what we're doing here this morning. Those are our roots. The Shema, the prayers, the reading of Scripture, and explanation. Let me put something to you then. If that's what it's all about, now then, how is that worked out? Of course, that's the challenge for us constantly, in every generation. As cultures change, we have to face God's unchanging truth and face it. And as values rise and decline, we have to hold on to what God's Word says. And that can be very challenging. So God's covenant is with his people, you have it in verse 3, and God's, and God's people respond to their God in verses 4 to 7. Right, and that's where we're at this morning. So, think of it like this. We really can't love God without loving our neighbour. The Bible is absolutely crystal clear about that. Indeed, it gives the converse. How can anyone really say you do love God when you hate your brother or your neighbour or whoever? You can't love God without loving your neighbour. Can we reverse that for a moment just to tease this out? Because the application is very important. But can we love our neighbour without loving God? Do we have the monopoly? Well, clearly not. Lots of people do it all the time. Parents love their children, even the wayward ones. Children love their parents, even the violent ones. God forbid, even the abusive ones. People of most faith, and none at all, can show enormous love. People can demonstrate love to folk in all sorts of situations, the marginalized, the addicted, the homeless. 
One of the things that Jesus did when you think about the love of God, which was the beginning of a discussion before he gives the parable of the Good Samaritan, was, well, who is my neighbor? Jesus says, anybody whom you come into contact with. And he deliberately and in a very provocative way chose a mongrel, a religious mongrel, half Jew, half something Gentile or whatever, a Samaritan, to demonstrate God's love. And in converse to that, the professionals, the priest and the Levite, cross over on the other side. Oh, it's, quite, it's quite radical. It's, it's quite terrible, really. So there's no room for Christians to have uh, self-righteousness here. And nevertheless, having posed that, that question, it still is something that we need to face as Christian people. If we say that we truly love God, how is that love expressed within our family, within our community, within our work colleagues? Roy Hattersley, a self-confessed, avowed atheist, in one of the talks that he gave quite recently said, we have to accept, albeit reluctantly, that most believers are better human beings. Interesting, isn't it? John Wesley in his day of enormous grinding poverty when good works were so essential for the survival of people, insisted they are no guarantee of a place in heaven, but they are the most likely to be performed by people who actually believe there is a heaven. Because what I do here will be an index of my relationship in heaven. And it's about the love of God. And we can't fudge that. So, okay, we've made that clear. We, we certainly don't have the monopoly. Didn't Jesus say the children of this world are wiser than the children of light? Oftentimes that's true. So here we are, we're thinking about the love of God. It's a very powerful challenge. It's not simply a, a theoretical thing. So notice the statement that you have in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. In, in a sense, um, what is God like, or who is God? Here, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God is one. And in that oneness, there is, he is relational. That God has relation with with, with, the, with the Spirit and with His Son. Let us make man in our image. It's always relational. God is intrinsically, essentially relational. And to love God is to be more relational, much more, even at our personal cost. As soon as we understand what God is like, then it is incumbent upon us, moving on from verse 4 to verse 5, what? Love the Lord your God. How? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. This isn't a marginal thing. This is not a little hobby that we have because we are that way inclined. No. And look. Look at verse 7. Impress them. Impress them. <laughs> we don't have time to pursue that, but, you know, 
on your children. Talk of them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie, and you, yes, the Orthodox Jews still do this today, but it's not only the outward practice. It is the outworking of this love. So let's look at two things very quickly. The first, we're thinking about his love that is a redeeming love. That's why he sent his son, the Lord Jesus. It's a redemptive love. And that redeeming love gives us forgiveness. If nothing else is true of us here today, that we who love God are aware beyond anything else that we are forgiven and we don't deserve it. And if that is true, then surely the outworking of that is that we should never withhold forgiveness to anybody else, whatever they've done or said to us. You see, it's, the, it's always the implication, with all of its emotional turmoil and injustice and unfairness, all of that. Because in the course of time, come to our reading in verse 20, in the future, when your son or your offspring ask you, what is the meaning he said, not to, I'm not interested in what it says, I'm interested in what it means. Do you see it? They, they made that transition. They made the connection. What does it mean? And without hesitation, verse 21, tell him, tell them, we were slaves. We're forgiven now. We're redeemed now. We've been brought out of slavery. Never forget that. There's no place for, for pride whatsoever. And it's incumbent upon us to say that meaningfully. We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out. It wasn't us. It wasn't that we had a good army. It wasn't that we had good strategists and we had all the resources. No, we were slaves. We had nothing. We couldn't do it. He did it. It's him, not us. It's redeeming love. And we enter into a community of forgiven people. The point then is this, that for us, we weren't slaves of Pharaoh, but we are slaves to sin. We are slaves to selfishness. And God provides a deliverer. A greater one than Moses is here, the New Testament says. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God providing himself. He is the lamb. He is the scapegoat. He is the Passover lamb. He is. And so without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so that great verse in the New Testament kicks in here, doesn't it? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Let's look at the second very quickly. If the first redeeming love brings forgiveness, what is its implication, people ask, young people would ask. It's this, it's relational. It's relational. I know some of us are reserved and temperamentally there are people, all sorts of issues. You have no right to sit and belong to a church and keep your cards close to your chest. You have no right to do that. 
This is relational. And if the first brings forgiveness, the second brings real fellowship. One cynic said, what's fellowship? Two fellows in a ship. Just, you know, it's not like that. You have to take risks. The church is made up of often wounded, hurting people. So, this phrase, today, as you have it there at the end of verse 24, as is the case today, we have every right to say, does that apply to us? Yes, because Jesus quotes it in his day. And it's taken right into a new culture, into the Roman Gentile culture. And it's brought to ours as well. It's relational. And we are part of a fellowship of people that we belong together. Do you remember the, the song of the, the, the Beatles? All the lonely people. Where do they all come from? They come from your family. They come from your community. They come from your church place. And they come from your neighborhood. That's what we like. And Christian people have a wonderful opportunity to demonstrate in all sorts of ways this relational love. How we relate to each other. So what do we do as Christian people? We place our lives under his word. That's the point of the, of the reading. And through now the lens of the New Testament, because we can do this, we can look back, can't we, in a way that they couldn't. We can see the way that Jesus now takes this. And he says it to, to a very cynical man who says, help my family, we're quarreling over a dead relative. What does the law say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater command than that, Jesus said. And there isn't. When you think about it, shown of all its tradition and overlaying of religion, that is the greatest idea in all the world. To love God and to love people. If everybody did that, can you imagine what sort of a world it would be? Jesus takes this up, doesn't he, just before he's leaving. Or his impending crucifixion and subsequently his ascension. And to this ragbag of disciples, one who is going to deny, one who is going to betray, others who are vying for who is going to sit at the most important place and so on, you'd have thought, what is the point? I don't think they were any different to us. And he says, a new command I give you. Now, some call this the eleventh command. Yes, there's the ten and the new one. Well, no, it's the same, but the words, a new command I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. What is that? Well, of course, it's a sacrificial love. It's a, a love that is self-sacrificing, ultimately on the cross. And something would happen. A community of people would be born because by this will all people know that you are my disciples. If you have this kind of love. 
Of course there is the milk of human kindness. Of course there's human philanthropy. Of course there's generosity. Thank God for common grace. But there's something different here. Different. And it's a byproduct, not just of culture, not just of privilege of education, not just of affluence, but a work of the Spirit in the heart of people who have been forgiven. It's a relational love. And Jesus brings together the law of God and the love of God. Law came by Moses. Grace comes by Jesus Christ. So let's very quickly look at three one-line uh, uh, questions. The first, the application, if that isn't obvious already. This redeeming love means that we are forgiven, if you like, in the language perhaps that we might be familiar with of uh, King David in his adulterous affairs and his lies and his dealings and his misdemeanors. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. It's my problem inside, not simply outside of me. He wants to be forgiven. Anybody who has an encounter with the love of God will know that. That's the first. If that's the application, what's its implication? The implication is this that this relational love means I belong. You don't choose your family. You're born into the family. Some of you may say you don't choose your children. They, they come to you in all sorts of packages. And we don't choose the church. We are not a club. We are not a club. We belong. And, 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 and Christianity is a relational faith as no other. It has to be. And that is why what we are doing here this morning is so important. <coughs> Belonging, being part of church, a believing people. Here's a, a sentence that isn't meant to be profound, but just let's, let me get, read it to you. The church is the representative, representative community of the triune God on earth. That's it. That's what we are. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For all of our faults and failures. So, application, implication, one question to close. What is the quality of our relationship in this church? Forget about other churches now. This is where we are at, isn't it? What is it? What's it like? Now, of course, if you complain, maybe you need to do something about it. Maybe you need to be like that young scientist, Anita, and say, somebody's got to do something. Maybe you're willing to step up to the plate and talk and relate. That's the question. What is the quality of our relationship like? Essentially, discipleship is all about this one thing learning to love learning to love are you a learner a fellow learner about the love of God learning to love 
And the litmus test, the acid test, to love God is to love my neighbor as I would love myself. Now that is a community of people worth belonging to. Redeeming love. Relating love. The love that impacts our lives and the ripples felt wider and wider.